It was just a little more than a week ago that the sight of flags flying at half-staff, some familiar footage being re-shown from New York Island, broadcast of ceremonies at the site, and maybe a couple of extra patriotic Facebook posts on our pages reminded us that 14 years had passed now since that fateful day, September 11, 2001. Another year has passed. And many of us watching those videos, especially the clips from that day, felt our stomachs tighten up one more time as we remembered our, watching the terror with our own eyes happening live on broadcast TV. Well, two years and ten months after those horrendous events, the 9-11 Commission came out with its nearly 500-page report trying to answer the biggest question of all. Could anything have been done to have prevented, to have foiled, to have avoided this awful event? And page 9 of the executive summary of that 9-11 Commission report says this. Since the plotters were flexible and resourceful, we cannot know whether any single step or series of steps would have defeated them. What we can say with confidence is that none of the measures adopted by the U.S. government from 1998 to 2001 disturbed or even delayed the progress of the Al-Qaeda plot. The most important failure, they said, the most important failure was one of imagination. We do not believe leaders understood the gravity of the threat. A failure of imagination. We couldn't imagine a situation that serious. We couldn't imagine how serious the terrorists were about their intents. We couldn't conjure up a scenario in our own minds that even approximated the deadly events of September 11, 2001. So we did not prepare to meet them. It was a failure of imagination. Our imaginations often fail us. Now, some of us are quite adept at imagining worst-case scenarios and living with those over our heads all the time, but they fail us in other important ways. We lose the capacity to imagine life with God. We can't see ourselves fully following Jesus Christ, really doing justice, actually overflowing with the kind of gratitude and joy and love and peace that the Scripture describes. We can't see ourselves really living sacrificially, living in any way radically. We can't see ourselves really becoming any more spiritually mature than we are this day. We can't see our character any deeper than it is at this moment. We can't imagine God doing extraordinary things through us. We can't imagine it. And consequently, unable to imagine such things, we are no longer to hear able to hear Jesus' invitation to those places. All we can imagine is the pitiful trajectory of an ordinary assumed life that will continue pretty much as it always has to its obvious destination. Business as usual, trapped in the confines of our own abilities and our own present character. We lose the ability to believe in something other than what we can see. And that loss changes the way we see the world, it changes the way we pray, it changes the way we read scripture, it changes the way we live. A failure of imagination means that our world is merely three-dimensional and the dimension of the kingdom of God has evaporated. How did we get there?
Well, along the way, something happened to our imagination, our capacity to see the world as more than merely the physical one. When we held that form and that ability in childhood quite well, really, we could imagine ourselves as anything. We could be aliens or astronauts or ballerinas or princesses. We could do all of that. We could read of Narnia or Middle Earth or Hogwarts, and we were there. Our imaginations were alive and vital. We could fly without wings and walk on water. But our imaginations were really systematically deconstructed over time by what Madeleine Engel calls the dirty devices of this world. They were extracted from us. Culture, education, even church robs us of our imaginative capacity. We're told pretty early, you're just imagining things. Stop imagining things. To imagine is to live in a fantasy. To imagine is to live deceitfully. And so it wasn't long, maybe by the time we were adolescents even, that for many of us, all we could see anymore was the world as it is, not as it might be. And we became disappointingly prosaic. We could see the world for what it is. Now, there are a few of us, a remnant of poets and storytellers and artists that survived all of that with imagination intact and are able to enter into life even as adults, seeing things other people don't see and calling our attention to them. And we're grateful for that. But for many of us, a failure of imagination has crippled us spiritually. We're robbed of faith and hope because faith, hope, and imagination are all first cousins. They're related to each other. We can't believe what we can't imagine. We can't hope for that which we cannot imagine. You can hear it in our words. I can't imagine myself doing that. And so the hope goes away. I tell you, if you can't imagine yourself riding a bicycle, speaking a second language, graduating from seminary, getting a DMIN degree, if you can't imagine it, you probably might as well give up on it because we have to see what we hope for. We've been made that way. We can't see ourselves, we can't imagine ourselves becoming a person of prayer, a person engaged in acts of justice, a person living simply or sacrificially. If we can't see ourselves forgiving those who wrong us, can't see ourselves consistently engaging in spiritual practices that shape our life, if we can't see ourselves living free from anger and lust and vengeance and fear, we're unlikely to do so. The kingdom of God calls for people to imagine and to see what it is that God is calling us to. The poets and artists and storytellers that are still among us are God's gifts to help us stay on track. Jesus' stories of the kingdom of God were there to store our, stir our imagination. And, and the stories recorded in the Gospels about Jesus himself are there to keep our imaginations alive, to see that the world can be different than what we see it to be and what we've been taught that it is. Those stories stir the embers of our waning imagination. They say to us, imagine that. The gospel text that we heard read a few moments ago is one of those stories that does more than merely report an incident out of the life of Jesus. It's not there just to tell us what happened one day. It's there because over time the church remembered and recorded and retold and listened to that story again and again of Jesus walking on water and Peter joining him briefly for a try himself. It's a story that does something for the imagination. It helps us see the world as more than it appears to be. And it is a story, I think, that addresses in a powerful way our failure of imagination. Relive the story with me for just a minute or so. It is a great one. I think the heads of those disciples were still spinning from what they had just witnessed at the hands of Jesus. They'd been there with the crowds and had reported the crowd's hunger, but all the disciples could imagine was feeding those crowds with 
by sending them back home. Jesus says, what have you got? They said, a box lunch. He said, watch this. And with a kind of sleight of hand they could not understand and could not imagine, Jesus fed them all. And then he dismissed the crowds and the disciples so he could find some solitude for prayer. The guys had crowded into their boat and they were heading out across the Sea of Galilee, a little freshwater lake about five times the size of Lake Waco. They were making their way across there against some strong headwinds and as we would say in Texas, they were not making good time. They were getting caught in that and after a while Jesus finished his prayer and decided it was time just before dawn to join them. So he struck out for them, not rowing, not swimming, but walking across the surface of the Sea of Galilee. Imagine that. Now, listen, any way you want to think about this, this is pretty cool. Jesus was a human being. He was a human being in a human body. And he was walking on the surface of the Lake of Galilee and its waves. No kayak, no canoe, no paddleboard, no surfboard, would compare to what he was doing. Do you not think this must have been fun at some level, really? (laughs) Can you imagine? Then he got really close to them, close enough for them to be able to see him in the dim dawn light, and they were terrified. Their fear was in part a failure of imagination. They knew what human bodies were like, and they knew what water and its surface was like. They knew that water could not bear up a human body, so whatever else this was coming toward them, it was not a human being. And they couldn't imagine anyone, even Jesus, walking on it. So when they saw Jesus, it was shock and terror and fear. That's the only response. They couldn't be a person coming to them. It must be a phantasm, a ghost, a spirit, something insubstantial. If it were coming across the surface of the water, they were terrified. And Jesus challenges their fear and assures them of the presence. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. He has a smile on his face. I'm absolutely sure of it. I don't intend any disrespect, but if Jesus ever punked anybody, this was it. (laughs) How could he not have anticipated their response? And so he says, it is I, don't be afraid. And then, and only in Matthew's account, Peter speaks up. He has a flash of imagination. Just for a moment, a flash of faith. For a moment, he can see himself possibly doing what Jesus was doing. He was a fisherman. I wonder if he had ever thought about that, being out on the lake in the boat and having forgotten something on shore and thinking, looking at the lake still as it might have been, like polished rock of the temple floor and thinking, you know, if I could just walk back and get that knife, it sure would be a lot easier. He may have thought about it once or twice, but he knew that wasn't possible. But he was watching Jesus do it. And this was the Jesus who, by the way, one time had said to him, follow me. Is it possible I could do what Jesus is doing? It sure looks like a lot of fun. It won't hurt to ask. Lord, since it's you, command me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. Imagine that. His 11 companions never entertained that thought. Not for a second. They were still incorporating into their limited view of reality what appeared to be taking place around them that was absolutely impossible. The thought they might join him never crossed their minds. Their imaginations completely failed them. But Peter saw what Jesus was doing and he thought, that's pretty cool. I know that it was short-lived. I know it only lasted for a moment. But for a moment, he walked on water like Jesus. 
He surfed the Lake of Galilee without a board, barefooted on the waters. It was an incredible scene. But what could it have been like if the other 11 had done the same and said, me too, me too. 13 guys out bouncing around on the water, laughing and enjoying this moment, then getting back in the boat, fist bumping, high-fiving, laughing and joking. Imagine that. But just as Peter was making history, his imagination failed him. He began to imagine what the wind and waves were going to do to him, because he had seen that before, not what Jesus had invited him to do. And true to his name, he sank like a rock, calling out, Lord, save me. Jesus, of course, rescued him and then asked him the obvious question. What happened? You, you were doing so well. Why did you begin to imagine anything bigger than me? Why did you begin to imagine anything stronger than I am? Why were you afraid? Why did your imagination fail? What happened? Jesus and Peter got into the boat and the wind ceased and all 12 of the disciples looked at each other, still in awe over what they had witnessed. They never could have imagined such things. And I suspect the familiar words of scripture began to flood their mind, like the words of Job chapter 9 verse 8 of Yahweh, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Or the words of the psalmist in Psalm 77, your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And then they speak what's on their mind, saying what I guess Jesus intended them to learn from the episode anyway. Truly, this is the Son of God. We are in the presence of God. Whatever else Peter's story says to us, it tells us that when Jesus invites us out of the boat, out of the place we're comfortable, to join him doing something more than we can do on our own, we may freely do so without fear. Jesus invites the church to step out of its prosaic security, its anxious, unchristian cowardice, to venture into the winds and waves of bearing witness to this world, the church can do that without fear. But we have to keep our imagination prayerfully focused on him, the eyes of our soul on him. The resurrected Jesus, the Son of God, has to be a reality that is factored into our life with God. Imagine that. In Under the Unpredictable Plant, one of Eugene Peterson's books and one of my favorite writers, he recounts how when he was five years old, he used to wander out back of his house through a meadow to a barbed wire fence that bordered the farm owned by a Swedish farmer named Leonard Storm. Leonard Storm was a big man, and Eugene used to go out there and watch him drive his big green John Deere tractor through the fields back and forth. One day as a five-year-old, he wandered out there and was standing, and what he wanted more than anything else was a ride on that tractor. But he couldn't ask. And there was Leonard Storm out plowing the fields. One day when he was out watching that and wishing for that, the, the farmer saw him and stopped the tractor out in the field. And he stood up and began making these frightening gestures at little Eugene, waving his arms like this and shouting. But the wind was in the farmer's face and the sound wasn't coming to the little boy and Eugene thought he was telling him to get out of there and yelling at him. He thought he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Five-year-olds often are. And so he turned and he left sadly, disappointed, a little bit angry. He hadn't done anything wrong. He was just watching from a safe distance. Maybe somehow, someday he could ride that tractor, but he went home feeling rejected and sad and disappointed. Leonard 
and Olga Storm were members of Eugene's church, and they saw him every Sunday. They were both big people, big, tall, forbidding people. He was in awe of them. He said they never smiled. They exuded what he called a dark Nordic gloom. And they sat in the back of the church with their son, who was in a wheelchair suffering from muscular dystrophy. They were rich by that congregation's standard, and they were the folks always, when the budget wasn't going to make, they would write the extra check. And that Sunday after Eugene's disappointment at the edge of the field, Leonard Storm came over to him after worship and said, Little Pete, and he said he hated it when he called him Little Pete. Little Pete, why didn't you come out in the field Thursday and ride the tractor with me? Eugene told him he didn't know he could have. He thought he was chasing him away. Leonard Storm said, I called you to come. I waved for you to come. Why did you leave? Eugene said he thought maybe he didn't know that's what he was doing. Leonard Storm said, well, when you want to call somebody to you, what do you do? Eugene said he extended his little five-year-old index finger and curled it back three or four times. Leonard Storm said, that's piddling, little Pete. On the farm, we do things big. Eugene was crushed. I want you to listen to his words as he finishes that story. He said, I felt small. I was already small on the outside. Now I felt small on the inside. Disappointed and crushed, but also a little angry. This gigantic Norwegian farmer calling me and my world piddling. He goes on. He said, a few days after my disappointment at the edge of the field and his reprimand in church, I was back at the fence, watching, hoping I might get a second chance. The big Norwegian saw me, stopped the tractor, and did it again. He made that sweeping motion of invitation. I was through the barbed wire fence in a flash, running across the furrowed field, and then up on that big green John Deere. He let me stand in front of him, holding the steering wheel, pulling the plow across that long stretch of field, my smallness absorbed in his largeness. Peterson actually calls that first day out at the field a failure of imagination on his part. He said, I had such a small idea of the world. I interpreted the large, generous actions of the farmer through my cramped, confined experience of a five-year-old, and I misinterpreted. I have to tell you, I've come to read the story of the sea-walking Jesus and joined by Peter in a little bit different way than I once did. I think I read it rather prosaically for such a long time, picturing them out there in the storm and Peter shouting out, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. And Jesus responding, come, and Peter walking. I don't think, Jesus didn't nod. He didn't twitch his index finger like he was calling a kitten. I think it was different. That doesn't work for me anymore. Jesus is the sea walker doing the unimaginable and had to be enjoying it. I imagine now Peter sees the joy and the wildness of all of it and says, me too, Lord, can I come? And Jesus says, huge smile, waving his big arms, come, by all means come, walk on the water, trample the waves, do the unimaginable with me, come join me, join God in the kingdom that never passes away, come be forgiven and learn to forgive, come learn to love and to be loved, come make peace and reconciliation, come heal the sick and overcome the evil one, come learn to pray, come walk with God, come for rest, come for life, come by all means, come. Peter gets out of the boat and goes. There is a place in your life, now maybe, or perhaps in the very, very near future, 
when you're going to hear Jesus inviting you to something that you've never imagined. And he's not twitching his index finger at you, whistling. He is waving his big, strong arms and inviting you with joy to come. His gesture is a big one, smiling, inviting you to join him in the kingdom of God. And that will require imagination. In a world like ours, which I fear is filled with unchristian cowardice, it will require great imagination. Is sending armed soldiers to the Mexican border or building an enormous wall the most imaginative response we can make to the issues of immigration, to the thousands of children swarming northward for refuge? Take courage, Jesus says. It is I. Don't be afraid. Can we imagine nothing more than destroying our enemies, attacking, invading, shooting down even the innocent? Can we imagine nothing better than finding our comfort in winning Supreme Court cases or getting our favorite piece of legislation passed? Can we imagine nothing better than to depend on princes and presidents or congresses? Can we imagine nothing more in finding our security in a sidearm? Can we not hear the noise, above the noise of the wind and the waves, God calling to us something far more imaginative? than that in the kingdom of God, far more grand than the world's piddling imagination and responses. Life in the kingdom of God cannot do with a failure of imagination. Our imagination needs to be refired with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The confession that Jesus is Lord needs to restore both our confidence and our commitment. The reality of Easter morning needs to infuse our thinking about our own daily life and our world and all of its troubles. Jesus is alive. The call to follow Jesus Christ, to come to him, needs to lift our thinking out of the categories of this world's piddling efforts. The mercy of God needs to transform our minds so that we live with each other in our homes and in our worlds differently. Let me repeat. There's a place in your life now or in the near future, where you may hear Jesus inviting you to more than you've ever imagined. He's not twitching an index finger at you. That's piddling. His gesture is a huge one. God is waving his strong windmill Jesus arms and calling you to something grander than you've ever thought. He's calling us to grace and mercy and salvation and he calls us, beckoning us with his huge arms to come to the Good Friday cross and the Easter Sunday tomb and the Holy Spirit Pentecost church. To walk boldly with him on seas that frighten us and to have our smallness absorbed in his largeness. Imagine that. Imagine that. Thanks be to God.